0: We often uh, have um, Nick come up and preach for us. It's a privilege to be able to do that, Um, and um, something that um, I'll just say, I wish it had been done for me in seminary. <laughs> um, but to be able to give opportunity, um, and as well as someone who's so gifted in being able to do it, um, to have Nick uh, come and preach for us this morning. Um, and he's doing that out of Jonah 1, 17 through chapter 2, verse 10, which reads, Now the Lord Yahweh provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, Yahweh his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, Yahweh, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord Yahweh, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord Yahweh, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord Yahweh. And the Lord Yahweh commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So Same I uh, I bet God. you didn't think
1: that the word of God had vomit in it. Um, so um, there's that. I heard that from uh, from from somebody who I, I drew inspiration from from this teaching. Uh, but yeah, that's funny. The word of God, vomit. Um, just keeping it real. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're in Jonah two. This is, and I'll, I'll say, I'm getting, I'm like on the last day of a cold that I've had this week, so if I sound a bit drony and which I, I do sound very drony, my apologies in advance. Um, but yeah, we're in Jonah 2, so where are we? We, what has happened thus far in Jonah? Care to give me any, from, from your best memory, um, how we got to where we are? Jonah 1, what happens there? Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Throw me overboard, and that's that's where that's where we pick up. That's the first sixteen verses of Jonah. Um, and so what we have here is a, a rebellious prophet. Um, we often call Jonah in our Christian soul or circles, I've always heard it as Jonah the Reluctant Prophet. It's like his his appositional name. Uh, but I think it's in some ways that's perhaps a, a euphemism or something that just takes the bite off of it. Jonah, to me, is a rebellious prophet. Um, maybe not a reluctant prophet. A reluctant prophet would say, oh, I don't know... You know, instead of heading a ship on the opposite direction, maybe they go like, you know, if, if, if Tar- or, uh, Tarshish is, is west and Nineveh is east, maybe they go north or south. So what we have is a rebellious prophet. Jonah, a shady character, is just running so far away from God. He is anything that he can do to get away from doing what God has called him to do. That seems like what he's doing thus far even to the extent where he throws himself in the sea. Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh. Jonah would say, I would rather just die in this ocean than obey God's word. So Jonah, not a reluctant prophet in my mind, a rebellious prophet. But Jonah is also a really compelling story, right? It's it's one that we, we know if you've grown up around circles and, and, and perhaps... I would, I would argue if you just grew up in general Western culture, you've, you've heard about Jonah regardless of your faith background just because how enigmatic the story is. It's so crazy. Exactly, yes. It's, a ch- it's children's puzzles. We have branded it for children. But in fact, the opposite is true. Jonah is not necess- a sto- necessarily a story for children, but it is intense. It is an adult story. But it is so compelling. And I think one of the reasons it's compelling is that Jonah is a metaphor for all of Israel. In some sense, the prophets, this section of the Old Testament, Jonah is a parable, a narrative of all the prophets. It's Israel's disobedience met with God's command to to do his will and their disobedience, and, and you try to figure out how God is going to deal with this disobedience, this disobedient people. That's what Jonah is. And Jonah is also really compelling, and, and the reason I think we call him a reluctant prophet is because Jonah is, like many stories, especially this one, is a mirror story. And so what Jonah is meant to do is serve as a mirror by which we look at ourselves and we ask how am I Jonah? Because in many, in our own ways, we each are Jonah to a greater or a lesser degree. And it causes us to look at ourselves and say, how am I running from God? Or how is God faithful to me? Is God faithful at all in the midst of hardship, in the midst of the belly of the beast? And that's what Jonah is, and that's that's why I think we, we call him the reluctant prophet, because we don't want to call him rebellious, because that would that insinuate that we ourselves are rebellious. But perhaps we just want to be reluctant. So that's Jonah, um, and that's where we're at. So let's jump into the narrative. So Jonah has just thrown himself into the sea. He would rather die, sink to the depths of Sheol, as we'll see, the land of the dead then, then do, then go to Nineveh to do what God has asked him. So verse 17, now the Lord Yahweh provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Um, so what, this is just the craziest thing in the world this story is comical. It's satirical. And if we read that verse and it doesn't like shock us at all, and we're like, what? A huge fist just swallowed Jonah and he's there for three days. How is he alive? Where are we? We are in the belly of the beast. And that is the context for um, chapter two, as we um, will just read. Jonah is so far as you can see in the narrative, we have the benefit of knowing the whole story, perhaps. But at this point in the narrative, Jonah is facing the end of his life. Everything is falling apart. Everything is coming to end, to an end. And he finds himself in the proverbial, the literal, but proverbial belly of the beast. He is in the pit of despair the very end of himself, everything is coming undone. I love the the quote, speaking of the pit of, pit of despair that I found in, in the reflection here. It's the third one down and it's from The Princess Bride. Um, and so you, it's the grandpa narrating the story and you can imagine, and one of the little asides that, that happens throughout the movie is like, you can, you can hear him say, okay, all right now, let's see, where were we? Ah, yes, the pit of despair. And then he he goes back in and to narrating the the story. So that's where we are. We're in the pit of despair. We are in the belly of the beast. That is where Jonah finds himself. And the truth of the matter is that we too can find ourselves in the belly of the beast. Just like Jonah. And it could be for a number of reasons, and we could all face it to varying degrees, but certainly what we have here is an intense ending, a, a everything in life is, is coming to an end, and everything's being shaped by this perspective, cessation of life, and, and, and so in that extreme, but but we all find ourselves in that belly of the beast, just like Jonah. And it could be for a number of different reasons we find ourselves there. It could be because of our own decisions. That's certainly what got Jonah here. Um, you know, it wasn't God that was uh, that was causing him to sin. It was Jonah's sin that got him into the belly of the beast. It was his own decisions, his own culpability, his own rebellion. But that's not always what gets us into the belly of the beast. It could also be the result of other people's sins, other people's foolishness, other people's um, influence on us that has caused us to be in a belly of a, a beast, a, not of our own making. I think of uh, the story of Joseph, who um, is, is certainly, he's the, the last born, but the favorite, and certainly you can tell the, the child of promise from God, uh, but he finds himself in a pit, only later to be sold into slavery, not because of his own making. Certainly, he's a questionable character in some sense. He's probably not perfect in every way. He was probably a little arrogant when he was sharing his dreams with his brothers. That certainly is what the narrative seems to suggest. But he finds himself in the belly of the beast, not by his own making, but the sins of his brothers, the sins of those who um, even perhaps cared about him the most. So all that to say, we find ourselves there perhaps because of our own decisions or maybe not. And the the paradox that we will see is perhaps God could even be an integral part of our being there. God is the one who sent the fish to swallow Jonah. And so that can be a little bit uncomfortable when we think about that. So we're faced with some questions when we find ourselves in the belly of the beast. Is God faithful to us when we are disobedient or find ourselves... You know, it, it, perhaps if it's not of our own making, when we find ourselves in in that proverbial belly of the beast, when we find ourselves in the pit, is God faithful to us when we're there? Faced with the end of ourselves, everything, life coming to an end, everything seeming to fall apart, how do we respond? And perhaps uh, most significant, how does it mean that God deals us a severe, mercy. We will unpack that a little bit more. But what does it mean that God is an integral part of our being there? That he deals us um, what I've called a severe mercy. Um, and just for disclaimer, I, I got that title. It's from a, a book, uh, of a letter correspondence published in the 70s between Um, Kevin Van, um, I'm going to mess his name up, but um, he corresponded with C.S. Lewis, and um, he published that correspondence, um, and and the book is titled A Severe Mercy, um, one of which one of my favorite pastors um, picks up on that theme when reading it here in Jonah 2. So what does it mean that God deals us a severe mercy? Well, I think we have a lot to learn from Jonah's uh, interaction here. So he finds himself in the belly of the beast in in a place where, you know, there's so much, I mean, you can imagine other fish debris or, or what's happened, what have you, perhaps bile or stomach acid, just this crazy, crazy place in the belly of the fish. What would your reaction be to being in such a place? Probably like fighting, like if you're alive, fighting like all get out to, to get out of there, right? But what do we find jo- Jonah doing? Composing an intricate, beautiful Hebrew poem as a prayer to God. And so in, in some sense, I, that's meant to be satirical, um, I think, in, in the narrative. And, and it c- should cause us to laugh. But I, there's a lot to learn here uh, about Jonah's response from rebellion um, to a place where at the very end of himself... He prays to God. And so what I'd like for us to do, we'll just go through um, kind of chunk by chunk. I have separated out for us kind of the, the main themes and the movement of the prayer. And we'll talk about Jonah's response um, and see what we can learn from that. And then we'll talk about that in relation to how do we respond to being in the belly of the beast. So we know where Jonah's at. And in one it said, From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God. Uh, And also another aside before I get in here, I added, so anywhere you see, I just find this interesting and and for general education for all of our people, anytime you see in your English English Old Testaments, um, LORD, L-O-R-D in all caps, um, that is short for God's personal name, which I've, I've included there in brackets. So ours will read LORD, but it's God's personal name. God goes by Elohim. As well as um, yahweh but but in a, in a sense of tradition and, and kinship with um, our our Jewish brothers and sisters we've we've uh we've kept this the Lord tradition rather than using god's proper um, personal name but the reason i I bring it out is to show you that this prayer is deeply personal whenever it's it's in the context of a covenant relationship, so if I called out for help to um this woman here I would I perhaps would not say wife i would be like saying god no I would use what I know my wife as in our relationship and everything that's bound up in that and I would call her Natalie and so that's this intimacy that is perhaps lost on us so I, that's really helpful to bring out I think as well so Right, now that we've got that out of the way, yeah, let's look at what Jonah does here in the belly of the beast and what can we learn um, from Jonah. Probably quite a lot, um, hopefully, we'll see. Um, So, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord Yahweh, his God, and he said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Does it sound anything like the rebellious prophet we've come to thus far? No, not at all. We see that in the belly of the beast, that hardship causes Jonah to cry out for help. Have we had moments in our lives where perhaps our life was out of our hand and the only thing you have left is to cry out? I think of when we've run out of toilet paper and... I'm stuck there on the porcelain throne, and I have to call out, "Natalie, I need a roll of toilet paper. Perhaps even more dramatic. would be we would we'd be out entirely, and she'd have to go to the store, and thereby I sit for an hour longer. but no, I say that in teasing, but but in reality, when you come to the end of yourself, there's no shame in crying out. Jonah finds no shame in open rebellion, he finds no shame in crying out for help. And even perhaps more important, he states that God listened to him. He said, He listened to my cry. You see, when we are in times of hardship, when we find ourselves in the belly of the beast, we think often that God is nowhere near us. He is everywhere except for here. But Jonah draws exactly the opposite con- conclusion that in the midst of my hardship, when all else is stripped away, perhaps the only thing here is God. God is certainly elsewhere, but Jonah draws that conclusion in the midst of his hardship that he finds God to be near to him, listening to his voice. And maybe perhaps, I'm not sure of this statement all the way around, but maybe perhaps God is most involved when we are in the belly of the beast something to think about moving on to verse three so not only does it cause him to cry out for help but in verse three let's read this you hurled me into the depths into the very heart of the seas and the current swirled about me all your waves and breakers swept over me and so in verse three we see he cries out for help and God listens to him but even furthering the the image the belly of the beast makes Jonah's awareness of God's presence all the more heightened. Look at the agency here. Jonah, certainly, when we read chapter 1, Jonah's the one who threw himself into the sea. I mean, perhaps the sailors did, but he's certainly the one who has gotten himself to that position. But That's not, that's not the whole truth. He said, you have hurled me into the depths, God, and your waves and breakers swept over me. You see, Jonah sees God's direct involvement in his story, and that has caused him to be into the belly of the beast. So that makes us a little—it makes me a little tense—that God could cause me to be in the belly of the beast. We think an all benevolent God wouldn't do something like that, right? But is God responsible for Jonah's sinful decisions? No. He's not. I think that's obvious. But regardless of how he got there, Jonah sees God's providence, that God perhaps got him into that hardship. God is not the author of the circumstances, but he is involved, and he will work it out redemptively in his circumstances. And that's what Jonah sees. Jonah's not blaming God for doing, getting him there. He understands probably his culpability but he also understands God's Im- Im- immediate presence and involvement in his story, which is uh, brings another thing. It, it makes us uncomfortable. I just mentioned, and and the fact that God could perhaps throw us into the belly of the beast makes us uncomfortable. And and maybe we think, and maybe we run under this naive image of God, that, that God really just wants us to be, you know, happy and healthy and safe and secure. And, and that's maybe the God we see in in in, in Genesis 1, um, and that certainly is the God, uh, the heart. But, but more than that, that is such a naive, um, ignorant, perhaps, view of God. What God, his highest priority, as we see in the scriptures, is to call a people to himself, like Jonah, like all of Israel, like ourselves, call them to himself and mold and shape their character so that they come to understand the truth about who they are, the real truth, as God's image bearers, as his children. And they come to understand that they are not God. That's God's highest priority, is to call a people and mold and shape their character into his image. And that's what is a, a severe. That's what a severe mercy is. When God deals us a severe mercy, is that we find ourselves in the belly of the beast, and God is involved in deeply in that. But He is molding us and shaping us, and it may deal with us in ways that bring us to the end of ourselves, and we may lose our lives in the pro- lives in the process. But the paradox is that if it's it may be the worst thing, but it also could be the very best thing that has ever happened to us, being in the belly of the beast. That's certainly the conclusion, I think, that, that Jonah is beginning to come to here in verse 3. God's agency, his severe mercy. We continue in verse 4. And I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. And so we see that Jonah has called out for mercy, and he sees God's involvement in the belly of the beast. But it also brings him to see his need for God. He recognizes that God is there, but here he admits that God is what he needs. The first, the first uh, stanza, the, or the first two lines of this, this couplet, um, I've been banished from your sight. It's, like, it's almost as if Jonah thinks, oh, I've, I've gotten what I've wanted. I've thrown myself into the ocean, the end of myself, banished from your sight, separated from God. It's like I, I was almost there. This is what I was trying to do. But I realize now, looking to your holy temple, that is the worst thing that could possibly happen. It's horrible. And it's not going to give me what I want in life banished from God what I want in life he sees here is turning to God and at the end of himself turning to God is all of a sudden very attractive that's kind of funny isn't it you know you find yourself drowning in the ocean and God all becoming all of a sudden becomes a very very attractive and that's what is happening here so we continue uh, not to belabor but um, in verse five let's read this together um, the engulfing waters threatened me, and the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Just a funny image there. Uh, I, I heard somewhere it was like a seaweed turban. You know, just kind of a, a funny, funny image there. Um, but yeah, so so Jonah, he calls to God in help or for help. He sees God's involvement, and he sees that that being away from God in the midst of the belly of the beast is the worst thing possible and that turning to him is attractive. But also we see here in verse five, Jonah realizes that God is the only thing that he has going for him. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. What I thought I was going to get by jumping into the ocean has given me nothing. Actually, it has, it's not what I need. It's and it's not doing what I thought it would do. But in fact, God is the only thing I have going for me. The, there's a there's a, a poetic sequence kind of throughout Jonah where he goes down and down and down and down. You'll see that word down all the way through. And so you, you see that picture here, the engulfing waters threaten me and the deep surrounded me. And that'll continue in verse six and seven where the roots of the mountain beneath the earth, Jonah's going down and down and down and it seems irreversible. It's over. When we find ourselves in the belly of the beast, it seems like we can never, ever get out. seems like that's it. We've come to the end of ourselves. But God, we will see, brings his life up from the pit. You know, this, this experience, being in the belly of the beast, has a way of stripping everything away from us certainly declutters our minds, whatever Jonah was thinking about, all the, the I, don't, I don't know, the wine and cheese and fine meats and tarshish or, or whatever. I'm, I'm not sure. But certainly that's far away from from his mind, the, the ideals of, of what he wanted stripped away in these moments. And w- it brings us to a point where we realize the only thing that we have left anymore, and really the only thing we've ever had, is God in his faithfulness. And that's where Jonah finds himself in verse five. You know, it's both, I mentioned this, but it's both the best and the worst experiences we could possibly have. We discover that we are not God, that, that these engulfing waters are so much greater than me. You disco- we discover the truth of who we are, and Jonah does. He's just a frail human about to be crushed, about to drown. God is the only thing he has going for us, or has going for him. And we discover, ultimately, that this creator, the one who made the heavens, the earth, and the seas, which he proclaimed in chapter, chapter one, he said, I serve the God who made the heavens and the seas. So you discover that creator, who is actually, instead of turned to judgment, turned to mercy and grace and faithfulness. Moving on, in in verses 6 and 7, let's read that. Um, To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit when my life was ebbing away like a tide drawing out into um, the ocean. I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you and to your holy temple. And so we see that Jonah's crying out, and he sees that God is there, and he realizes What I wanted is not going to give me what I want. And in fact, God, you're the only thing I have going for me. And that brings him here to a prayer, a praise of gratefulness in his hardship. I remembered you. When you remember in the Old Testament, whenever you see that, it's calling back the great things that God is doing. You could just say, like, I remembered you. I remembered that you existed. No, it's God. I remember that you brought us out of Egypt. I remember your hand in creating us. I remember you doing and providing so that we could live in a relationship with you. That's what remembering is. And so it brings him, and where is he when he says this? Where is he when he's grateful for God? Not a trick question. Yeah, we're still in the belly of the beast. He's not been coughed out. He's not been, we're, we're, we haven't reached vomit yet. Um, he's still in the belly of the beast where he finds his, his gratefulness. See, in the midst of the hardest seasons of life, the hardest season of his life, the very end of his, Jonah realizes the truth of who he is. And he realized that God's merciful faithfulness is the only thing. And then it, you seem to realize, when you remember the great things that God has done for you, and you reckon with your Creator, you come to this realization almost of, well, my life doesn't begin to like doesn't belong to me in the first place. God, it was never about me. It's about you, and you turn like Jonah to the temple. I turn to the place of God's presence, the embodiment of that space. You see, we want to use our life circumstances as a reliable indicator of how God feels towards us. So when life's going good, you're like, man, God has blessed me. I am, I'm doing so great. I'm so close with God. And, and perhaps when we're in seasons of hardship, like I mentioned earlier, we think God is the furthest away from us. So we want to use our life circumstances to, to predict how God feels towards us. But what Jonah concludes is the exact opposite that his circumstances have nothing to do with God's commitment to him. They're not a reliable indicator of God's feelings toward him. Even though he's in the belly of the beast, he finds himself grateful. And finally, let's look at uh, verses 8 and 9. So um, Jonah is grateful, and that leads him, we see in in verses 8 to 9. Let's read this together. Those who cling to worthless idols and turn away from God's love for them. Um, Oh, those who cling to worthless idols, sorry. um, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good, and I will say salvation comes from the Lord. So Jonah is grateful, and that leads him to a place of worship. That's what Jonah is doing here. He's sacrificing. He's making good of his vows. You see, the funny thing is those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But what was Jonah doing in chapter 1? He was, he was the people who actually worshipped idols are the ones who sacrificed to God, the sailors. Jonah has idolized his own autonomy, his own direction, his own plan, his own agenda and so what's 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 funny here is that that Jonah realizes that that idol is worthless, and he forgot that the only thing he has going for him is god and so, like the faithful sailors, which is a funny even of itself, sailors are supposed to be bad people jonah Jonah turns and he worships, and that's where Jonah finds himself at the conclusion of his prayer in the belly of the beast and and we conclude the prayer with, you know, the Lord commanding the fish and vomiting him onto dry land. He finds himself out of the belly of the beast. So we've talked about a lot of stuff. Um, we've talked primarily just of what's Jonah's response. This character who's run far away from God, yet finds himself in the belly of the beast. And that God perhaps put him there. God dealt him a severe mercy. And what does that, what did that mean to Jonah? Well, what does that mean for us today? You know, it could be the truth that right now some of us are experiencing a severe mercy. You know, I don't have prophetic authority to look on your lives and say, this is exactly where you are. But to some extent, maybe we are, or maybe we haven't yet, or maybe we have in the past. But we probably will all experience one, one day. And again, we could be there because of our own decisions, our own sinfulness that's got us there. Or we could be there because of the foolishness of others. But regardless, we find ourselves in the belly of the beast. But I think Jonah's response is what can really help us in our own severe mercy when we find ourselves at the end of everything, when it seems like everything in our life is falling apart, we can't put two things to, good things together in a row. It's just bad after bad after bad. Our lives are falling apart. How does Jonah respond? Well, maybe, hopefully, when we we're in the belly of the beast, we can find ourselves, like Jonah, calling out to God, crying for help, not finding shame and asking for assistance. You see, we all know people that just don't need God. They're on their ship to Tarshish, and it's going great. The the seas are are favorable. But at some point, we're all going to realize that that is not going to give us what we wanted, just like Jonah realizes that. But some folks, you can't convince of this. You can't convince that that ship to Tarshish is leading you to a place where you will ultimately find no satisfaction and ultimately death for yourself. And I think a faithful response for us and, and those people, maybe that's us, is being a pre- patient presence. Because I think what is going to happen is they w- we all will find ourselves in the belly of the beast. Um, but understanding God's faithfulness being faithful to those who are on their ship to tarshish that's how we respond to them you see maybe we also in the belly of the beast understand the truth of how broken and selfish we are our what are our worthless idols for jonah's his autonomy his own agenda maybe we've been taking our lives for granted that we can do whatever we want what Jonah concludes is that the only reason we exist is that someone created me. God is the one who has authority and autonomy, and he's the only thing we ever have going for us. And that brings us to a place of humility and dependency. Maybe we could also come to understand the faithfulness of God. One of our first questions: is God faithful to us when we're disobedient and in the belly of the beast? And we see here emphatically. Yes, if God wasn't faithful to Jonah, he wouldn't be in the belly of the beast. He would have been engulfed by the waters that were threatening him and the deep and the seaweed that was wrapped around his head in verse 5. But God is faithful. And the reality is there is no sin perhaps of my own, our own doing, or that of anybody else's that is beyond God's redemptive reach to use as an opportunity to shape us in a deep way, to shape us in the image of his son. Again, God's highest priority is calling a people to himself and shaping their character into his image. See, understanding, we could also As well, come to understand that our circumstances are not a reliable indicator of how God feels towards us. When we're in the belly of the beast, God is faithful. We think He's not. But He is. When life's going great, God's still faithful, but it doesn't mean that God is necessarily, I mean Blessing us to the like that God is really close to us when we're doing good and He's really far away when He's bad. That's not a true dichotomy, and that's what we see here that our circumstances are not a reliable indicator that God is always, always present and always faithful. And maybe ultimately we could do as Jonah does in verse 7 we look to the temple, we look to the hot spot of God's presence where He resides. And for us as Christians, what is the hot spot of God's presence for us? What do we look to when we return? When we remember the Lord, and our prayers rise to what? What person? I'm leading you. Not a trick question. Again, it's like Sunday school answer. Um, you know that uh, the Bible, um, prayer, and and Jesus are the three Sunday school answers I always joked about. But no, it's Jesus for us in the New Testament. Jonah turns to the temple, but we as Christians turn to the very person of Jesus Christ. We look to that one place to discover and understand who God is to us and who we are to him. It's in his life and death and resurrection that his life was lived for us, that his death was on our behalf for our sin and selfishness, and that his resurrection is a life that offers grace and a new chance at life for us. The person of Jesus is the only thing we have going for us. And we come, when we come to that place, regardless of what happens in our life, good or ill, our life is in the hands of a perfectly merciful, faithful God. Jonah doesn't know that he's going to get spit up in the belly of the beast. He probably thinks he's going to die. There's nothing that indicates that he thinks otherwise. And so when we come to the end of ourselves, the end of our lives, and when it seems like our lives are coming to an end and we can't help it, regardless of what happens to us, our life is in the hands of a perfectly merciful, faithful God. This is pretty heavy, but hopefully I think looking at Jonah's prayer that we can answer our questions that we started off today. What does it mean that God deals us a severe mercy? We can look at what it meant for Jonah, but hopefully for us, through that experience, we can trust that no matter what, God has our best in mind and he is shaping us through this experience. It may be the worst thing ever, but God is going to make it maybe the best thing ever. That's his highest priority. Not to make us comfortable, but to mold us into his image. And I think that's what we get to learn from Jonah um, chapter 2, that we trust in God in a way that Jonah does. An irredeemable character turns for redemption, and that's who we all are. Again, a mirror. Jonah is a mirror for us. So let's conclude um, in, in prayer. Lord God, we praise you for always being present. And we repent from our selfishness that, God, we don't look to you, that we don't think that you're the only thing we have going for us. We can always do our own things, handle our own agenda. God, you want me to be independent. Do my own thing. And so, God, that may bring us to a place of severe mercy. Or we could be there because of something somebody else has done. But, God, we rest in your consistency. That you are always merciful. And that you are perfectly faithful. Perhaps even especially when we are unfaithful. God, we want to see you in the midst of every part of our life and God we hope that when we find ourselves in the belly of the beast God that we can trust that you have our best in mind and that you are shaping us through this experience it doesn't take us out of the belly of the beast Lord but God it gives us an eternal perspective gives us your perspective Lord and so we ask for that perspective today and we pray to you because we love you and because you are near to us, you listen to us. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.